I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. Because who doesn't love obscure, middle-aged, middle-ages, European Christian history? Um, <clears throat> apparently you love it because you're still listening. So, ah, dive right in. We are transforming ourselves through our time machine into the period of 7th century Europe. And again, I mentioned this, I don't know if it was last week or a couple weeks ago. See, here's the dirty little secret about this. I record these at about two a week and then post them ahead of time so that they'll load properly. <clears throat> Excuse me. So when I say last week or the week before last, sometimes I don't remember because sometimes it was yesterday and sometimes it actually was last week, and I don't remember exactly what episode it was in, so I'm sorry. If you know, don't send me angry emails. I'm not that stressed about it. But one of the main, one of the, one of the minds, and I'm Australian, one of the main reasons for doing this is one, yes, we want to celebrate the hard-nosed faithfulness of Christian martyrs down through the ages. It's an encouragement to know what our brethren have undergone and what the Holy Spirit has carried them through. But the second nefarious motivation that I have is to actually have a little bit of fun with some history, something that many Christians are ignorant about. And while I am no uh, accredited expert in all things history, I do know a little bit more than the average bear. So I try to make sure we include that as much as possible. So when we're talking 7th century Europe, so 600s, excuse me, and in our case, late 600s, you are talking about a Christianity that is in flux. Remember, Christianity has gone from illegal in the Roman Empire to tolerated in the Roman Empire to official in the Roman Empire, and they did that in a century. So illegal around 300, tolerated in the early 300s, legal and uh, authoritative in the late 300s. That is also going on at the same time. You have heretical movements. You have mystical movements. And I don't mean that in like as in voodoo and witchcraft, but I mean Christian mysticism, the idea of uh, strange utterances and visions from heaven and weird living. These things are all going on in the same 4th century. And so when you then move into Europe in the uh, approaching the Middle Middle Ages, so Middle Ages typically run from 500 to around 1500, when you're approaching the middle point of that, excuse me, you are seeing all of these different elements as well as other worldwide things coming together. So you have a spreading monastic movement at this time. So monasticism begins spreading in earnest in the 5th century, and then in the 6th century begins to blossom with monasteries and uh, convents all over Europe. Feudalism is also entrenching itself as the governmental system that has replaced the fallen Roman Empire. The church is becoming a part of that as the churches are landholders. Bishops and even in some instances high-ranking priests are landholders. Therefore, they are feudal lords actually having secular authority. Learning is becoming more centralized. A lot of the times in those monasteries, we're still a couple hundred years away from the university movement uh, hitting its full blossom. So you're seeing a lot of people living on farms, living, raising families, dying, never 
really getting what you would call any form of an education. So in a lot of instances, you have local priests who are uneducated, except for the higher-up bishops and later cardinals. Unless you're dealing with monks in a lot of cases, you're not having a ton of learning going on. With that also then, heresy is growing. The Arian heresy is not going away. You also have a crystallizing of church structure, so the top-down church ruling authority of Rome, as well as in the eastern end, in Constantinople, later Byzantium, now it's um, Istanbul. When you're dealing with these uh, top-down authority structures, you're starting to see feudalism in in its structures creeping into the church. So that all equals a weird mix of worldviews vying for power and authority on the world stage. So you have the Christian worldviews. You have both Orthodox Christianity in the East as well as Roman Roman Catholic Christianity kind of emerging at this period in the West. You also have those mystical elements. So these are all trying to uh, vie for a power and authority. You also have Orthodox believers, not big O as in the Eastern Orthodox Church, but small O, faithful believers who don't want to see the Western Church succumb to feudalism as a governing structure. So you have various reform movements breaking out. You do have heretical movements. <coughs> you have various corruptions coming out of ancient Persia, which would be modern-day Iran. You still have Arianism spreading throughout parts of Eastern and Northern Europe. You also still have pagan worldviews, holdovers from the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths as they've come in from Eastern Europe, from Northern Europe, and have settled into the uh, remains of the Roman Empire. You have a Muslim worldview. Islam is interacting in both the, well, in both the Middle East, um, in Eastern Europe, in what's modern-day Romania and Hungary and areas like that, as well as in Western Europe, in Spain, and even into the Italian peninsula. You also, though, have differing Eastern views. We're a couple hundred years removed from the Hun invasions of, of Europe. The Huns have been kind of absorbed into some of these Eastern European peoples. So when you think of the Baltic areas, you will th- you should be thinking about those Asian peoples that live in Baltics, the Baltics, which are kind of modern Europe. These people are descendants of the Hun group that were migrating west. All of these things are kind of melding and mixing and souping together. So depending on who your king is, who your feudal lord is, who the local bishop is, who the appointed governor is, could determine a lot about locally what's allowed and what is tolerated and what is illegal. Now, (laughs) I tell you all of that story to tell you this story. What happens when faithful Christianity encounters a moral and religious soup such as this world is? And the reason why this is important is because Christian. Where do you live? You live in a moral and worldview soup that's, you know, not exactly monolithic. And yet you are called to deal with this place and to do so faithfully. So with all of that said, I'm going to tell you the story about Killian. Uh, Depending on how you want to phrase this, I would assume Killian is the traditional Irish name. He was born in Ireland in 640. Um, there is a Latin version of his name, Kilianus or Kilianus. There's also a German version of his name where it goes from somehow it goes from Kilian to Kiffian. So pick one, go with it, enjoy yourselves. At some point, 
not exactly certain when, if I had to bet, somewhere in the 670s, 680s, he and a group of 11 fellows leave Ireland for the mission field. They're going to travel and proclaim the gospel and try to lead people to Christ. They end up in central Germany. Now, this is just fascinating to me. So here you have Irish missionaries in Germany, which at this point, you're talking late 7th century, so you're going to be in the heart of what will later become, and by later, I don't mean that long from now, I mean a century from now, become the Holy Roman Empire. So they end up there, modern-day, well, ancient also, Thuringia and Baravia. So if you're familiar with the places Franconia and Würzburg, I don't know if it's Würzburg or Würzburg, you're talking about central Germany and southern central Germany, right on the border of the Bavarian forests of today. Now, in this work, Killian manages to convert Duke Gosbert of Würzburg. Now, this is a problem for Killian because the duke is married to his brother's widow, Gailana. Now, I don't know how why that's a big problem. I mean, if there's some nefariousness going on, then that could be a problem. Was this something that he divorced his? I have no idea. The history is lost to us, but... At some point in this, this was a problem for Killian and his compatriots, so they urged Duke Gosbert that he should separate from his wife as it is an immoral relationship, and he does. Now, what's interesting is Galana is not a Christian. There's question about whether or not she's got pagan roots or whether she's got Aryan roots as Aryanism was spreading throughout these formerly Gothic lands. Well, we mentioned this when we talked about Spain, that the uh, the Goths spreading through this area very much so embraced Arianism. So because she's not thrilled with this, this removes her from the seat of power, this takes away a husband. I have no idea what her motivation is. Don't care. In her vengeance, she convinces Gosbert to order the execution of Killian and two other missionaries, Kalanat, who is a priest, and Tatnan, who is a deacon, and has them beheaded. Yay. And believe it or not, that's kind of the end of the story because, again, some of these things just get lost to history and we don't really know all the little details. So why do we care about the story? Well, because what you have is a faithful Christian seeking to train people in sanctification so that they will grow in discipleship, encountering a worldview milieu that is just bizarre because there's no anchor. Welcome to your world, Christian. Welcome to the society in which you live where the anchor has been uprooted and everything is just kind of drifting around. So what do you do? You remain faithful. You disciple. You proclaim Christ. You hold to your principles because at the end of the day, it is these principles and our understanding of who we are in light of Christ that must be our guiding light. They are the anchor that hold us firm in this world. And sometimes that means the world doesn't like it doesn't matter. The God who has called you, the God who has carried you thus far, is the same God who has anchored you, who has strengthened you, who will provide for you the ability to endure whatever it is he has called you to face in this world. In other words, we can be at peace because we are at peace with God. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good.